inequality matters where it hits us locally in our sort of relative comparisons. And the reason, you know, we're talking about, yeah, our comparisons are not global and the global is experienced as local. Like these people that we see on our social media, it's as if our psychology registers them as local competitors. Welcome to Radius of Reason. I'm Lavon with my co-host and professor of political bro science, Andre. Hello, hello. And today we have an actual professor, Chris Von Ruden. Yeah, we're really excited to have Dr. Chris Von Ruden on the show. Uh, Dr. Von Ruden is a professor of leadership studies at the University of Richmond's Jepson School of Leadership. He studied anthropology and he's actually um, a core participant in ethnographic field work done of small-scale human populations in Amazonian Bolivia. So a great frame of reference for how human societies evolve, which gives us a little bit of an idea of where the hell we're going as we're barreling down to our future of an AI-dominated dystopia. Chris, uh, what was the wildest experience you had while studying the Chimani people of the Amazon? Oh, okay. We're starting off with a fun one. Um, so I've been going to the Bolivian Amazon since 2005, uh, first as a grad student and then as a professor. Um, and I go there to work with the, the Chimane people, this ethnic group. There's about 20,000 of them living in villages dispersed uh, in the uh, region near the town of San Borja along this river called the Maniki River. Uh, like so many rivers in the, you know, the Amazon rainforest, it eventually flows into the Amazon through other rivers. Uh, and yeah, they're the Chimane uh, have been part of a lot of studies in the past uh, couple decades. Um, many of them uh, with people I've worked with, uh, my former advisors um, and other grad students and, 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 and others who have been studying them in terms of their um, their health and aging, um, but they've been, you know, uh, there's been a lot of research tar targeting the Chimane in some ways because they um, really didn't start acculturating into a sort of a market economy until like the mid 20th century. Um, the sort of early attempts to missionize them uh, were a huge success. And they sort of their part that part of the Bolivian Amazon was sort of remained really remote until like the nineteen mm. really even like the nineteen seventies when roads were built to the region. So it remained a pretty remote area. And <clears throat> by two thousand five, when I was starting to work with them, um, you know, they were they were market integrated, but only sort of in an incipient way. And they still, you know, majority of their calories they get from traditional subsistence practices, horticulture, hunting and gathering. Um, and their, their villages, some are more remote than others. You know, some you'd have to go uh, in a canoe for a day or two to get to from the, the nearest town. Others you could get to via logging road more easily. Did you, did so, you visit any of those remote villages? Yeah. Uh, I visited a, a range of villages. Um, I think one of them, and to get to your question now, uh, one of the craziest things that happened to me, and this just speaks to speaks somewhat to my stupidity too. Um, I was with a friend of mine who was Chamane and I was going to interview some people and it had just rained pretty heavily. And I wanted to cross this small river 
And he said, no, nah, we shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> I was like, ah, it's not that far. Like, we can wade across pretty quickly. Um, and he's like, all right. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't say more. And I started going across. And the water levels just went like rapidly rising, <laughs> really rapidly. Um, and then I was swept off my feet. I was sort of like holding on to my data uh, in my, <laughs> my interview book in one hand, trying to stay afloat and save it, you know. Um, and I managed to chuck it onto the riverbank. So like wow. you know, my, my interviews were saved. And then a local Chimana guy a little further downstream got in his canoe and rescued me. That's amazing. Uh, so it just speaks to like, you know, the arrogance of those that think they know, you know, uh, things that the, the local people know way more than you. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that's that's awesome. The only thing that a... story was missing was like an alligator. <laughs> that, <laughs> or, yeah, or some sort of ve ve venomous snake. Do you have a sense of what the relationship yeah, with the Chamani yeah. is um, to the rest of the Bolivian state, or even the the outside world, quote unquote? I mean, I, I know they're not as remote yeah. as maybe the Sentinel Islands in the Indian Ocean, but mm -hmm. what is the sense of when you would engage with them on these research trips, what kind of position do they take to you or, or to some of your um, guides and things like that? So, I mean, there's no society on the planet that is sort of outside, truly outside the reach of the state. I mean, arguably there are, there are a couple voluntarily isolated you know, groups, more than a couple, uh, in parts of like Peru, Brazil, sort of borderlands. Um, uh, but still, even they have histories of sort of, you know, past interaction with the state, which is part of the reason why they're now living more remotely. So there's no truly sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, societies that have always been outside the reach of the state, you know, um, and truly isolated. Um, but in this region of Bolivia, uh, it had been sort of like a colonist town. Uh, so the you know Jesuits were there in the I want to say early late 17th century, early 18th century. Could be wrong, roughly then. Um, and their missions in that particular part of Bolivia weren't as successful as in other parts of South America. Mm -hmm. um, and the region just remained fairly remote. There wasn't a huge um, the rubber boom. Uh, hit a lot of parts of the, the Amazon, but not that part of, of Bolivia. There was just wasn't economically productive there. Uh, and then in the 20th century, Catholics and, and, and evangelicals renewed sort of missionary efforts. And shortly following on that, in like the 1970s, roads were built there. Uh, and with it, sort of colonists from the Bolivian highlands, especially. Um, and But even still, you know, uh, when I was there in, in the early 2000s initially, um, you know, there's a police, there's a police station there, but it, you know, you sort of had to pay them to, from what I heard to do anything. And they didn't really have much of a role in the sort of, um, crime and punishment and justice and politics of the Chimane communities. Um, that's slowly been changing, but, um, yeah, so they've been sort of, you know, you know, under distance from the, the, the Bolivian state, um, but of course that's been changing uh in terms of their like reaction to westerners um you know they they people have watched a lot of like action movies and you know those seem to get around everywhere i go around the world like people may not know of um uh, a lot of american pop culture but they'll certainly know like michael jackson and schwarzenegger and <laughs> uh 
I think know. he shot one of his. I, I think yeah. Arnold shot one of his movies down there. Actually, maybe it was <laughs> Commando or something. But there's a lot of pirated DVDs <laughs> that make their way around, and, and in local towns, yeah. you know, there'll be TVs playing these these uh, movies, and people, and you know, the Chimani might make it to these towns to trade and watch movies, and um, and they they get clothing that somehow you know used clothing that makes its way from the Western world uh, in the U.S. down there. Interestingly enough, uh, one of my trips there, I was in one of the more remote communities, and somebody told me Michael Jackson died. And I was like, first of all, I was like, okay, well, you know Michael Jackson, that's interesting. And um, <laughs> and then, he, but then he died? Like, no. I mean, I was just, maybe a week or two ago, I was in this town, I was checking email, and you know, I, I would have heard, like, no. But sure enough, like, yeah, he had died. Word had traveled quickly along the river um, about Michael Jackson's death. And so, just you know, they're they're at a distance, they're remote, but the world is small at the same time, you know. Wow, I, I was going to ask you if you encountered any surprises, but I think you just answered my question because uh, that, that, that's 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 crazy. Hey, if you enjoy what we're doing with Radius of Reason, make sure to like this video and hit that subscribe button to get the latest drops of our podcast. Also, we'd love for you to reach out, leave a comment, let us know what you think about my haircut and Levon's beautiful, beautiful navy blue shirt. Make sure to also follow us on Twitter, radius-underscore of. What about at, at a personal level, um, what can you draw from your experience studying them? You know, not, not in terms of your research, but just at a human level, like what was some profound things that you learned that you took away from, from that experience? I, th I think uh, a lot of anthropologists approach things with the name of, of understanding difference, cultural variation, different ways of thinking, understanding the world, different normative structures that shape how we think and act. And that's, you know, there exists that, that kind of tremendous variation. And certainly that the Chamane people have really, you know, norms and, and patterns of behavior and lives that are quite different from mine. At the same time, the humanity is just, you know, the similarities overwhelm those differences. In my mm. view, everywhere I've gone, including with the Chimane, you know, the nature of jokes, um, <laughs> the, yeah, the sort of how people react in certain kinds of situations, be it in, in conflict situations or others, even though, you know, the, the kinds of institutions we have to deal with conflicts or that manage our lives are, are very vastly, there's just a very common human element. So it's, uh, people are people. Um, and just out of curiosity, so the Chimane, uh, in your research, you, you've mentioned that they're kind of dispersed among about 95 villages. They tend to live in, in groups of 30 to about 700, the largest. And that in total, mm -hmm. there, there's assumed to be like about 15,000 um, in, in the Chimane population, so to speak. And maybe the research is a little bit older, so those numbers are, have changed. But it, right. is there a sense of homogenous understanding within the Chimane people that they are, in fact, belonging to this overarching umbrella term or is it indeed divided up based mm -hmm. off of their immediate localities as in do they feel that the other 94 villi 94 villages around them fall into their greater ecosystem of civilization i think they have a much stronger corporate identity as a as an ethnicity um in the past several decades as you know there's been much more colonization in the area much more threats to their um their land and their way of life um, and they've been more participated more and more in, in scientific research. Um, 
and because you know traditionally uh, they they are very fission fusion. The society was really based around the extended family, mm-hmm. not the community per se, and certainly not the ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Um, although they did recognize you know people that spoke their similar language, and there are other people that had different languages, and um, uh, you know they have a word chatidye for somebody who's a part, you know, who's a Chamane person, mm-hmm. uh, and then words for non-Chamane. But really, you know, they didn't even have, you know, villages or communities didn't really have formal kind of boundaries or or, or permanent names mm-hmm. until past few decades. Um, it really was the extended family that was the center of social life, and, and the extended family could move around a lot um, to different parts of the, the territory, depending upon, I shouldn't even use the word territory, uh, depending on the season, uh, to visit family, et cetera. Um, so this sort of corporateness to their communities or their society, their society as a whole is really only a product of the past few decades. Um, now there are other traditional small scale societies, um, you know, that, uh, including in the Amazon that had much more corporate structure, um, to them. Uh, but the Shimane were, were, much more decentralized mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and still are to a degree. That's interesting. Um, to shift gears a little bit, um, can, you, can you tell us about the differences between high status men in small scale societies versus large scale societies? Uh, you know, in, in particular, in particular about like the role of generosity, how, how that factors in if there tends to be more or less sociopaths in positions of power, things of that nature. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you, you sent me a list of questions and things we might talk about, and this was on there. And the sociopath thing, I was really thinking a lot about it. That was interesting. Uh, I think, um, I mean, generally what's common across small and large scale societies is there's this fundamental tension, but, uh, you know, in terms of all people want to learn about each other in terms of our um, abilities and attributes to figure out who should we cooperate with, who should we mate with, you know, who's of value. Um, who can harm us um but and the tension is between you know our desire to f- learn about these things about each other and then the cost of of us intentionally signaling our our abilities or attributes to show that we're better than somebody else mm-hmm. right so we want that information and yet if we personally signal that information it has negative consequences it come we come across as being selfish self-focused and so i think one commonality to status uh, determinants of status and, and status seeking cross-culturally is we, we try to make our status signaling sort of harder to detect. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we couch it in, in kind of things like generosity that are of benefit to the community at large or benefit to other people that, and, and try to do so, you know, uh, in ways that's not overly flamboyant necessarily. Um, uh, so I'm thinking like, there's a, an anecdote used my students. There's this episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry David, where he and Ted Danson give donations to this hospital, except Ted's donation is anonymous, right? But he sort of knows, like, the people will figure it out, and sure, sure enough, they do. And Ted Danson, because of his anonymous donation, gets all this praise and all how thoughtful you are. And Larry tries to say, hey, I donate too. And they're like, oh, yeah, just calling attention to yourself. I see. <laughs> um, so that's um, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I was thinking about Donald Trump as an example because he has very conspicuous displays of status and wealth. Uh, and what do you make of that 
Like, what do you make of him able to sort of bypass that negative perception? Yeah, I think if we if we um, compete for status in some culturally sanctioned ways, then it's okay. Like in sports, mm. or like for me in academic journals, you know, where there's <laughs> certainly a status motive mm. there. Uh, it's not just about you know pursuing the truth um, and you know doing good science. It's also you know you're trying to show that you're of value and um, and I think even with things like conspicuous consumption, you know, if Donald Trump rolls up in a large car or he happens to have a large house, um, you know, it's obvious that there's status signaling there, but I think what's, you know, and that's maybe harder to explain in terms of us wanting to make our status signaling harder to detect. But I think even in these sort of, you know, pulling up in a Maserati or something outside a restaurant, um, you know, it's, it's that you could have, you know, it, the sub... The status signaling is more the subtext and it's not like verbalized per se. It's sort of there to see, but it's not like, uh, you know, you're telling everybody, this is why I bought this car It's just to show off, or I bought this larger house just to show off. Um, you know, it's, it's more the subtext. So, um, so are I think you, are you familiar cases, with the concept of stealth wealth? Right. Right. Kind of, <laughs> I think it started coming yeah. into the the like the lexicon of pop culture with the Succession series, where they yeah. started analyzing you know Kendall Roy's baseball cap, which is just a black cloth cap, but it's worth like fifteen thousand dollars or something like that, and it's intended yeah. for yeah. hey those who know they know, but for yeah. everybody else you're not you know particularly engaging in a gaudy display of the aforementioned you know Maserati or Bugatti at the restaurant. Yeah, and that that Bugatti the restaurant could backfire. You know, because it's like, oh, you're overreaching or, you know, um, you're really, you can't be truly wealthy if you have to try and flaunt it like that, you know, as opposed to this, like you just said, the stealth wealth, where those in the know, if they do discover it, that you're wearing it. Oh, okay. That's a real <laughs> signal of wealth. Yeah. So is that, uh, uh, what, if you had to maybe attribute tensions in, in our current society, do, do you think there is a constant uh, renegotiation of, of this concept of status within how we live today. I mean, you have like the injection of technology, right? Where all of a sudden TikTok is bringing back mm -hmm. some of these um, attributes of, of wealth and status. And Yvonne, I'm thinking about, you know, our Andrew Tate discussions with mm -hmm. kids, especially young men flocking to very in your face displays of wealth with again, like the Bugattis and Maseratis and whatnot. But then there is also this understated element of wealth where no, we must position ourselves as uh, good citizens um, engaging in environmental activism, not flying in, in private jets too often. Is that is that a tension you feel like does characterize our our society? I, I think any society, t to varying degrees, um, that yeah, you want to yeah, it's this tension. You want you know you want to pursue status, and people want to learn about who has value you know around them that can be a benefit to them. But then you don't want to, if you're, if it looks like you're only pursuing status, you come across as selfish. So there's this tension and the more we can pursue status in ways that are subtle or in culturally sanctioned domains or via, you know, like via generosity and you know, our commitments to say public charities or things. Um, I think the more we can look like we're not necessarily doing it only for status. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think societies vary in the extent to which that's sort of policed um the sort of the you know how stealth stealth your um status signaling has to be 
that's where you see a lot of cultural variation. And I think in any society, people want to, you know, don't want to be overly pretentious in their status signaling. But there are some societies where it's especially concealed. Uh, a lot of these so-called egalitarian societies and the Chamane, you know, are towards the sort of more egalitarian end of the continuum. Um, there's like a norm of people um, insulting each other, putting each other down in order to say not let anybody think they're, you know, too big for their britches. Um, and so when people are, there's this, you know, funny anecdote that's, you know, told often in anthropology 101 classes called uh, insulting the meat where this anthropologist buys a, an ox for this community in, of hunter-gatherers in the Kalahari. And uh, they say, we can't eat that. Uh, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's disgusting. It's, you know, it's not good. And in fact, it was like probably, you know, the best meat they would have eaten in a while. Um, but to accept a gift uh, like that would basically say to this person, you're high status, you know, you have power over me. Um, and so when people then are generous, they're very, in these, these societies, more Galtern societies, they're very careful to deprecate their achievements, um, and their ability to be generous. Um, so that's where I see, you know, there's this cultural variation in just how policed is status seeking behavior. Um, and I think where societies get wealthier and people become less sort of dependent on each other for, for you know, cooperating to buffer risks of, of, of food production and other aspects of daily life, our societies tend to become less egalitarian. And, and with it, you know, status only becomes more overtly competitive, mm -hmm. though I think still limited to, you know, venues that are sanctioned by the community, like generosity in the context of feasting, where somebody can be very ostentatious in how much they're giving. But it's a culturally sanctioned venue for for showing off, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and it has this value. Ostensibly, you could argue this is for the value of the community, and not mm -hmm. just to show off for myself, or you know, or glorif glorifying warriors, where you know, uh, ostensibly the value is they're helping the community. Um, uh, so, I, I did want to touch on this point because you have called it out in, in what you've written in the past. Is this relationship of egalitarian societies based off of how quote unquote evolved they are, and my question to you is, is that is a kind of an inevitable factor of let's call it economic evolution, where right now we're in the knowledge economy or, or tech worker economy or whatever descripting label you can attach to it. But it, does that imply that by nature of evolving economically and having greater output in terms of capital, we are going to be by definition less egalitarian because we're not going to be relying on each other more? That is egalitarianism in fact, attached to, to our ability to um, function as hunter-gatherers or need, have a need intrinsically to be dependent on one another. Yeah, I think, we, you know, if we talk about the evolution of societies, you know, it'd be good to, like you said, sort of economic or cultural evolution to distinguish it from you know, biological evolution. Um, and that, you know, we're all, you know, as our, for the earlier discussion, we're all human. And, but so our societies differ vastly in some ways because of, changes particularly to our material culture. So yeah, more wealth, um, you tend to see societies become less egalitarian, um, or at least there's this cross-sectional pattern to that where we look in the ethnographic record, societies that are um, wealthier tend to be less egalitarian. You tend to see more formal leadership. Um, and yeah, so um, uh, 
our modern democracies, arguably, you know, some of the wealthiest societies that have ever existed, um, and you could argue they may be more egalitarian than, say, um, you know, these uh, pre, you know, pre-modern states and empires. Mm-hmm. But yet, our, you know, even our democracies, you know, um, we willingly grant coercive power to others over us, um, and you know, we still live in a state society. That's that's quite different from a more egalitarian, small-scale society where. Nobody has any course of power over anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, I don't know. Maybe we try in our democracies to try and, you know, given that we have these, we don't like being coerced. We don't like being bullied by others. And yet um, the societies that have tended to do well as they've grown and gotten wealthier have those that have implemented sort of a hierarchical leadership structure. Um so you could argue, you know, maybe our democracies are making the best of, uh, you know, both worlds. Um, you know, they're not dictatorships. People feel like they have some input into their their governance, uh, like they have some autonomy. But speaking of, of of leadership, can can you talk about any trends that you've noticed uh, between like earlier human? societies or even early human ancestors like zooming out all the way to australopithecus like homo habilis like are we trending towards you know less macho leaders um like have you have you noticed anything like that or done any research with regard to that uh i mean one curious thing is that in societies i've looked at that are more egalitarian or smaller scale there's you know there's still individuals that you know that are seen as being more generous or, or have slightly more influence in their communities tend to have greater reproductive prospects. Um, and that's as we find that as well in our own society to a certain degree. And that in these more egalitarian societies, larger individuals, especially among men, tend to have more informal influence. And we see a similar thing in US presidents tend to be <laughs> taller than the average. Um, there are these, so those kinds of commonalities also, even in more egalitarian contexts, there, you know, in, during existential crises, when there's you know, groups might fa- face threats from other groups, you, there's evidence that people are more willing to defer to more domineering kinds of individuals. Um, same thing in our large scale societies, where in times of threat or perceived threat, um, people are more willing to defer to more domineering uh, demagogues that can, you know, lead them to where they, you know, out of this existential threat. So there are these commonalities to human psychology that, that um, play out. I think just in these smaller scale Galatarian societies, people have more recourse to when the emergency passes to level the field again and, and kick out, you know, domineering leaders. Um, How was that handled at the level but, of the shamanic people when, when a threat would pass and, and there would be a need to kind of recalibrate back towards maybe a more egalitarian approach to organizing your community? Was it a voluntary recognition of, okay, I've kind of done my bit as an autocrat and I'm stepping back, or is there some sort of mechanism in place? Well, in the case of the Chimane, I mean, nobody ever reaches autocrat status. (laughs) Um, But, you know, in the context of a community meeting, I'll see somebody be more forthright than is common. And it's typically because it would involve some kind of uh, threat from um, colonists or interaction with um, a logging company or ranchers where this particular individual might have some market-based knowledge or interaction outside of the community that other people just lack. 
Uh, and so in those circumstances, they'll be accorded some more clout in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in, you know, outside of that context, then that person will have no, get, be afforded no more sort of, you know, right to sort of verbalize in a really sort of prominent way their interests and their, their beliefs and views. Um, so that's what I sort of see in the Chimane, but there, there are examples in other um, small-scale societies where in warfare people will defer to, you know, leaders that act somewhat more um, coercively, and then outside of that context they won't. Or in context of larger, when groups assemble into larger agglomerations, and there's greater risks of conflicts erupting, or greater problems with achieving collective action, individuals will uh, elect chiefs or, or others to sort of um, uh, lead the group. But then at other times, you know, outside of these large agglomerations of people, there'll be no chiefs, there'll be no sort of deference to course of authority. So there's this, Interesting. I think in our psychology, you know, there's this context sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it seems like uh, we've become more flexible, right, as opposed to necessarily preferring more or less macho leaders, right? Uh, we just develop like yeah, just a higher sensitivity yeah. to the context. Yeah, and it's maybe it's not even preference for macho leaders so much as a tolerance of them when they might be of <laughs> mm-hmm. utility. <laughs> right. Um, because one thing that humans do better than other, you know, our closest relatives and arguably some of those other hominid species you mentioned is we can form coalitions, group-wide coalitions to take down domineering leaders. And that's why we can be relatively egalitarian in the first place. Um, and it's why even in autocracies or, you know, pre-modern states and empires, for individuals to gain power, they had to have a huge following that they mm-hmm. could build around themselves. Um, that's very different from, an, you know, an alpha chimp where, you know, with maybe one one or two assistants, you know, strong coalition members, they can dominate the whole group. Um, Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, another topic that I wanted to discuss was, um, you know, this idea of the delocalization of status. And, and that's just a fancy way of saying the status hierarchies today are more at the level of like the entire world as opposed to your small tribe where you actually had a chance to be the best at something like you had the you had a chance to be the best swordsmith or the best at setting traps to catch squirrels or make rock tools you you know you name it today because of our you know hyper-connected globalized world you are literally just uh, an instagram scroll away from you know just seeing another competitor that's far more successful than you or uh, a woman who's far more attractive than your wife or your girlfriend. So, it, you know, it, it brings up this quote, you know, comparison is the thief of joy. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it naturally begs the question, like, what is all this doing to our psychological well-being? Um, I'm curious if you have any any thoughts on that. I mean, it's a big issue right now in my house. My daughters are 8 and 11. <laughs> getting them cell phones or not as they're getting older, you know, Knowing what we know about just that, that comparison and what it does to self-image and well-being, um, maybe especially for young girls, but, um, you know, adolescents generally. Uh, so, yeah, I think it, it speaks to what status is inherently, which is relative. And if you're comparing yourself to, you know, there's not some like, oh, I've achieved this level of ability in some absolute way. Now I feel my well-being is, you know, tied to that. No, I mean, our well-being is, you know, especially tied to our relative positions such that millionaires can feel 
low status if they're rubbing shoulders with billionaires. So, um, uh, and I think that this, you know, the way the internet and, and media and technology has expanded our, our basis, our comparisons, um, that's, you know, a problem. And I think, uh, somebody who's inspired me in my thinking a lot is this economist, Robert Frank. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's argued that this sort of our relative status concerns, um, are problematic when, for a couple of reasons, when we funnel a lot of that into conspicuous consumption and, and because our societies are more and more winner take all where, because we, you know, companies and, and, you know, move directors of movies and, and sports teams can hire globally, you know, and people are competing across, you know, with competitors from around the world. Um, you know, the competition is, is tougher. And then only those that, you know, make it to the top do well, whereas those just are rung below, uh, mm-hmm. you know, make much less money than those that just that hit the top. Um, and so that sort of winner take all, uh, comp- status competition in a world where you're competing against globally, you know, for positions now, um, that's a, that's a, you know, uh, can just make status competition that much more intense. And, and, and Robert Frank as well, you know, points out that when a lot of that competition is funneled into things like conspicuous consumption, um, and not into things like savings and health and, um, education, that's a problem. Mm. Um, and it's, it's all exacerbated too, by this, I think fundamental property of status hierarchies, which is they reinforce themselves. So we grant status to those who already have it. Um, uh, so you're going to get much bigger differences in status than you, what you'd expect in terms of the real value people could provide to others. Um, so yeah, that's, it's a problem when, um, our relative status comparisons become global and markets are winner take all and status hierarchies tend to exacerbate. Um, yeah. So, uh, and I mean, to take a step back to the context of, of making the decision of at what age and should we be kind of injecting children into this uh, atmosphere? Is there also like a point to be made about excluding somebody from that greater status hierarchy is just as damaging as, you know, letting them observe it from a young age? As in, is somebody going to be at a disadvantage if their parents don't allow them to enter into the, the rat race of Instagram and social media and whatnot when they finally are entering into the world? Yeah, I don't, uh, I mean, that's, that's tough. I have a friend who, this is uh, interesting. His family decided they would pay their kids something like five thousand dollars if they didn't use phones until they hit eighteen. <laughs> uh, so it's sort of like we're not going to police this. We we you know we discuss you why we think you know phone use at least of you know app app use and social media use is problematic in terms of social comparison. Um, but it's up to you. And if you don't use the the phones till you're 18, you'll get this amount of money. I don't know if that'll be a successful strategy, but it's an interesting one. Are they taking inflation um, to account or is that, or is that just oh, a, yeah. a set? I don't, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I don't think we can, I mean, how do we, you know, and it's not just, you know, teenagers and phones, but you know, a world where CEOs are headhunted globally or, you know, whatever it might be. It's, it's, um, uh, yeah, it's, we're, we're always comparing ourselves and that, that comparison gets, just gets steeper and steeper and steeper. Um, so I think, you know, one way out is to like, 
yeah, we can't avoid that, but we can also try and cultivate more local status competitions, you know, or at least participate in groups locally where, you know, the competition isn't so overt or cutthroat and we can feel valued. Um, and that's maybe part of the problem is a lot of people maybe aren't, you know, uh, spending time in, in local groups where they can feel valued. Um, is there anything we can do, uh, you know, at, at the political level with our incentive structures to emphasize more local comparisons of status? Uh, I mean, maybe just, um, you know, it, I think the pandemic maybe isolated people even more and made it, mm -hmm. um, trickier for that to, to, you know, to us to rebound from that. Um, but yeah, just, I think maybe too, as now I'm in, you know, middle-aged man, and I, I see a lot of men in particular find it harder and harder to sort of socialize as they get older. And, um, and, uh, yeah, it's just, I don't know what kind of policy could or should incentivize sort of people to forge local connections and join local community groups. Um, but living in these sort of atomized nuclear families with strangers as your neighbors, that's, it makes it tough. For sure. So the Chimani people, they obviously were more locally focused in their status competitions. Did, did you notice maybe any difference in terms of their well-being? Like, were they happier? Uh, I feel like this, I mean, that's a big yeah. difference, you know, uh, I did between our society some... and theirs. Yeah, and it's not like, oh, you know, a lot of people have romanticized hunter-gatherers and small-scale societies for this kind of reason, but um, uh, no, I mean, mortality is higher uh, at all ages, um, you know, uh, they don't maybe, you know, some hunter-gatherers are known for not working as many hours as, say, you know, Americans, and but it's not like they're they're working less and then just, you know, because life is just easy going, um, it's because, you know, there are diminishing returns to working as hard as you can for eight to 10 hours straight when you're foraging for food. Mm. Um, uh, so I actually did a study with a Shimane where I found that um, individuals that had more local status in terms of like um, relative influence in their communities tended to have lower urinary cortisol levels now that can be interpreted in different ways. I mean, one possibility is that it's a reflection of lower stress, sort of um, psychological stress on the part of those that have more local influence. Mm -hmm. And that relates to also that these individuals have um, larger local social networks. At the same time, um, individuals that had a little more income from market transactions, uh, and this covariate, you know, within the same individuals, so I'm just talking just in general, uh, mm -hmm. but those that have more income, you saw the reverse. So there was a, a small effect, but um, one that showed higher cortisol levels with greater market participation. Maybe uh, this is just speculation. Their basis of comparison now is with people that have TVs and then mm. you know have have to you know uh, plumbing and whatever mm. else. And so that's interesting. That is very fascinating. Um, so, so do members uh, of the community that do engage in market participation, are, are they more likely to leave kind of their original communities behind to, to maybe relocate to other parts of Bolivia or do they tend to still stay within those smaller scale societies? Um, there's some Chamani people that have become more like urban and that they've moved to the local town. Um, 
most most Shimani, even more remote communities, participate in trade in some way, um, selling goods, uh, forest products, and and other things. Um, but that yeah, there are some some Shimani who have you know have the more most income that are engaging now in more cash cropping, that are working more and more for loggers and ranchers more than others do, um, that are spending a lot more time outside their communities. But the vast majority of Shimani people still you know live within their extended family networks most of the year mm -hmm. um in villages um is, no, is it in flux i mean it's and it's been in flux for for decades is it seen as a element of status if you are able to participate in the market to a greater level or if you do find maybe additional employment before you come back does that equate into the general calculus of somebody being higher status within the chimani groups and does it result in them coming up in positions of leadership more often just because they've had more exposure to engaging with non-Shamani uh, groups. Yeah, because a lot of the the issues that require collective decision-making or, or conflict resolution involve uh, interactions with outsiders gotcha. yeah, that's or right, yeah. Yeah, things like that. Um, so that's why it's, you know, the, these trends I found where the, if you have more influence locally and, and that's heavily linked to your social networks and your local communities and um, you have this negative association with cortisol, but, uh, with the more income you make, there's this positive association. And so, and that's a statistical result because, you know, in reality, a lot of these same people have, are high in both. Mm -hmm. Um, mm. and, uh, because what gets influenced in a lot of ways is, is your exposure to the outside world more. Um, so yeah we'll see in in 10 20 30 years um what sort of you know i've been also documenting changes in their leadership structure where the people are there's more centralizing of leadership and conflict resolution in communities that are more market integrated um arguably you know moving away from moving you know along that egalitarian continuum towards greater political inequality you know ever so slightly but um have you observed any trends uh to to redistribute capital or to uh or organize and um stick it to the higher earning chamani people or, or is that still a little bit too early in their respective uh, structures uh money is something it's it's weird i think you know unlike food where you know people are expected to be generous and share especially with fa extended family mm -hmm. um money is something different where people will not loan out money even to close friends or, or relatives sometimes um i think as money is, is not you know its value does not diminish over time like food can very rapidly um but uh i haven't seen people that have been um greedy in terms of their you know we're taking advantage of the community to our income yes so people that have sold like logs from forests around the community uh to make a, their own profit um, have been chastised mm. um, publicly. So there's that. What about like freeloaders in general in that society? Uh, I mean, ha have you gained any insights into how they handle the freeloader problem? You know, like with the mm -hmm. advent of AI, you know, a lot of talk has been about UBI uh, and providing, you know, that kind of a safety net. Right. What what insights have you gained from from studying the Chimani? Um, so, 
free riding, free loading in their society, you know, would include, yeah, um, not sharing with others, especially in your family, your extended family, when you've produced food or something. Now, again, money is seen as something different and it hasn't been a subject to the same norms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, or sometimes the community will come together to collectively decide about um, clearing trails or um, there's some issue where there is like a conflict or a theft or something happened in the community that requires people to come together and resolve things. Um, those that, you know, don't frequently participate in those collective discussions um, are sort of looked down on for not, you know, contributing to the community. But again, they're not, but you know, there's a fair degree autonomy is respected. And, and so that trumps everything. Um, so long as you're not actively harming others. Um, so, and, and you know, collective action also isn't that frequent in their society. And so mm. there's just less um, possibility to free ride when you're not engaging in collective action as often. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, like selling community lumber is an example, a definite example of free riding um, that's uh, been an issue of late. What, what role does leadership yeah. play in, in resolving some of those issues when they do come up? Most sort of conflicts um, get resolved by the parties directly involved, and, and some of them might involve voting with your feet, where you just move to an, you know, where your relatives live elsewhere, mm -hmm. uh, or conflicts don't get resolved. Um, a minority of conflicts, uh, more influential individuals will step in to help um, mediate. Uh, and then the more serious cases, the whole community might come together hmm. and, and even decide on punishment. Um, and, but again, punishment, punishment is tricky because, um, the, you know, the overriding ethic is one of autonomy. People should be able to be, you know, so to, to, for the community to punish is a huge deal. Um, and the risks of counter punishment on, from the part of the individual is punishing their family. So there's an interesting case where somebody was um, committed murder and then they w ran away into the woods uh, for months, I think. Hmm. Uh, and mm. when they came back, the community was not organized in, in, in the sense of being prepared to really deal with this individual that had murdered. And things just sort of, I guess, went back to norm relatively normal state of affairs. And do, then this do you know... Guy, yeah. Do, do you know who he murdered? Was it maybe a lower status individual? Because it seems like he got away with it. For, I think it was. It, uh, I can't remember the details, um, but it wasn't somebody from his own community. Um, mm. The second time he killed again, though this individual. Mm. And the second time that was the the community. Then it's like, all right, we're going to do something about this. Hmm. And they they actually solicited the help of another community that was more market integrated to come and help them uh, in the sort of public uh, punishment of this individual, which involved whipping, basically. Um, does does Bolivian law kind of, I mean, I, Bolivian authorities don't try to, to impose their own legal frameworks uh, on these groups, right? So they're not- More recently, the, there have been in cases of like you know, a murder or a, a serious incident, um, there have been more referrals to the police. Mm -hmm. And I've heard, you know, this has been, you know, I've heard this more frequently. Um, uh, so, yeah, so things have been changing, um, you know, and how the sort of local institutions evolve in tandem with the sort of the state as mm -hmm. the state's reach gets stronger, 
you know, it's, it's, we'll see how that plays out. Mm-hmm. Um, cause traditionally, you know, like the example I gave you, you know, the state was not involved. The police were not involved. It was mm-hmm. removed, far removed from them. And, um, yeah, it was handled internally. Mm. Sounds like they may be paying taxes soon for all these services. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. Uh, so like based on your, you know, studying of small scale societies, um, I think both Andre and I are very curious, like how you would see us addressing modern day inequality in in larger scale societies. Do you have like a central thesis on that? We sort of touched on some of these topics uh, here and there throughout the conversation, but um, do you have maybe just a central idea or framework to think about how we could address uh, these things? I think like inequality matters where it hits us locally in our sort of relative comparisons. And the reason, you know, we're talking about, yeah, our comparisons are not global and the global is experienced as local. Like these people, you know, that we see on our social media, it's as if our psychology registers them as local competitors and local, mm-hmm. you know, in our, in our social networks. And, um, and so, um, that's, you know, I think, my general larger thesis is that we understand, you know, when equality becomes problematic politically is when people perceive um, themselves as sort of losing status and unable unable to compete, not having recourse to local groups where they do feel valued and have some degree of status. Um, so I think there's, and there's interesting, you know, uh, effects of this, like, let's think about you know policy to redress inequality like welfare policy where there's interesting results where some of the most vociferous opponents are um low income less educated individuals but not the lowest income um and you think well okay that's obvious they might be in a position at some point to actually benefit from welfare but they're comparing themselves to individuals they see as even poorer than they are um, who are receiving these benefits right and they're not and so there's this sort of, you know, um, desire to not be the sort of in last place, if you will, mm-hmm. um, that affects uh, that sort of aversion. There are no poor in America, rungs. only temporary impoverished millionaires or, or however the, exactly. the saying there goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think that's also that, a, that similar demographic, especially men who are middle to low income and especially less educated that's the demographic i'm worried about because it's i think a lot of people are worried about in this country um it's one of the only demographics that if i think the only that's seen um increases in mortality in in recent decades it's also a demographic that's driven a lot of the anti-democratic sentiment mm-hmm. uh, on the right and it's one that it's it's a demographic that's perceived itself as slipping in terms of the hierarchy do, do you um, think that's also linked to all the mass shootings that we're seeing? Like this is part of the same phenomena? I, it's easy to lump those together. I, I, you know, if you've looked at the profiles, a lot of these individuals, you know, I would bet there's connection there to, mm. to some of that. Um, you know, and the antidote is like, the, like Andrew Tate, right? Or, or that kind of thing. Um, uh, to, at least to the, you know, a lot of these, this demographic and, um, but I think we can't place the blame there because uh, I, I don't mean to place blame there per se, because it takes also the elites 
you know, and right. the certain elites that profit from, um, you know, en enraging that demographic uh, are at, at even more at fault. Um, and there's, uh, it makes me think of there's this economic uh, historian slash biologist, Peter Turchin, who has this interesting model of political um, unrest and he ties a lot of it to status competition, especially among elites, where there are too many elites chasing too few positions of actual power. Um, and you get that in a world where, you know, and where winner, it's winner take all. And so then you mm -hmm. have a lot of like, you know, highly trained, educated, even rich individuals, but they don't have political power. And that, that leads to a lot of inter-elite competition that sort of build up your coalitions to, you know, and, uh, leads to infighting among elites. And so... Um, Peter Turchin's sort of famous for prognosticating like 20 years ago that around 2020, he predicted the U.S. we'd see a real uptick in uh, political tensions in the country due to his model that, you know, is tied to not just immiseration of sort of lower classes, but inter-elite competition. Um, so if you had to like kind of what, prescribe... <laughs> I was just going to say real quick, you're, what you're saying is making me think of uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk oh, supposedly <laughs> fighting. There that's it personified, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, but, but if you had to kind of take Turchin's idea and maybe build off of it, yeah. would you kind of prescribe the, the drive for like revolutionary movements or radical movements as, as just kind of a, a seeking to redistribute hallmarks of status as opposed to trying to inflict genuine structural change or i mean is it a question of if there is a radical left-wing movement trying to mm -hmm. overthrow the current e economic model is that just an expression of like a charlatan that, that's trying to get their own piece of pie or is there something genuine that could be driving that forward oh i think there's yeah there's definitely something genuine in all of these you know right or left these movements but you know genuine grievances um you know, and genuine view that the society is not functioning for the the many as best as it, as it could, as opposed to benefiting the few. Uh, whether this is coming from the right or the left, but I think there's, but the, at the same time, there's always status um, involved. And I think, especially among you know a lot of these movements, right or left, it takes elites with money and time and know how to put them together. And these, mm. you know, and and their motives often, as Churchwood argues, driven by a sense that they don't have the power they should they think they should have mm -hmm. um you know i'm trying to think of the actual examples like on on the left like i don't think that was necessarily the case with like occupy wall street for example mm -hmm. or, or these other but um uh yeah um but i yeah status though i think just suffuses everything and, and often it's it's not conscious. You know, we might make up some very, um, you know, selfless and noble seeming ideals, and, and we may believe them. But I think you can't easily divorce these things from status concerns as well. In in one of your TED talks, you mentioned um, uh, a consumption tax and how it helped mitigate conspicuous consumption. Uh, which can in turn, I think, mitigate at least perceived levels of inequality. Can, can you speak to that and maybe other incentive structures? 
that you may have in mind? I think so. That's um, Robert Frank again, mm. who this mm. economist um, who was really pushing this consumption tax idea, and he has he was a essayist in the um, in the New York Times as well, where he sort of defended this. And interestingly, I think somebody else who was a proponent of a consumption tax was Milton Friedman, who's this sort of mm. you know, <laughs> symbol of free market. So it's yeah. you know, counterintuitively. Um, but I think both of them, maybe for sort of similar reasons, saw uh, a consumption tax as beneficial because it would encourage more savings. And, and on Robert Frank's part, uh, drive people away from this sort of arms race of status signaling through consumption. Um, you know, the bigger house, the bigger yacht, the bigger boat, the, the whatever, the bigger, the better, more expensive vacation. Um, so that's you know something I don't think whatever will ever happen you know especially <laughs> as our you know our institutions just seem very um, well slow slower to change. I mean, and, are, aren't you asking the elites to essentially give up status in a sense? Like if that consumption tax is severe enough to make a difference, then you know that that's impacting their displays of status, which is again like impacting their perceived status. So yeah, that's that's a mighty ask, right? to ask people to give up status as a solution I, yeah. <laughs> to a problem. I guess it depends on how progressive your consumption tax is, just like how progressive your mm. income tax is. But um, I think they'd find a way to, to pawn that off onto like lower <laughs> to middle class people. <laughs> it would make yeah. it a lot harder for, for somebody just to like afford the basic necessity. Yeah, that's um, so yeah. I, I, you know, I think we should all be thinking though about policy. You know, I, I don't think a consumption tax is going to solve our, you know, worries about uh, democratic backsliding um, mm -hmm. and the sort of economic inequality generally. Um, and you know, I think most people would agree economic inequality in of itself maybe necessarily is a problem. You know, it's when it involves uh, a lot of people that are unable to, you know enter into the meritocracy at all, or um, when it leads to status comparisons that causes unrest and at some points even violence. Um, so how we deal with that, uh, you know, there's a pessimistic view, which is that policy really won't work. <laughs> and what, what only has worked historically is uh, epidemics or warfare or state collapse. Um, mm. But uh, a more optimist view would be, we look like, well, look, in the 20th century, you saw the effects of policy in post-World War II and really leveling the playing field uh, in the United States, um, New Deal kinds of policies. Um, but yeah, it, and, and I think one of the more disturbing aspects of it is, from what I understand, one of the reasons why the New Deal was even implemented is because you had a ideological counterbalance existing in Europe at the time where you had a state mm. that fully embraced communism and there was this threat mm. that uh, there would be a radicalization of labor movements. But we don't really have that today where, I mean, we're not at the end of history. I think that's been kind of proven wrong time and time again, but mm. we, we don't really have an ideological force that is actively opposing what we have throughout the majority of the world that would require you to make concess concessions to maybe more, um, quote unquote, socialist based policies to maybe a uh, universal basic income or uh, government funded public works programs, 
things like that. Do you, yeah. Chris, do, do you, so, sorry to cut you off, Andre. Yeah, um, no worries. Chris, do you see UBI as being something practical, um, like as a solution? Like, do, do you, I mean, what, what, what is your gut feeling towards it based on all your research? Uh, I've seen defense of it on both the left and the right. Uh, I think it was even like Nixon tried to get it done in the U.S. and it didn't go through. Right. Um, and so it's not just on the left, but uh, yeah, I think um, when what I know of like experiments with just direct cash transfers in different parts of the world to underdeveloped places, that the effects tend to be pretty positive um in letting people just do what they will with these direct cash transfers um and so yeah the concerns about waste or um uh you know throwing money at, at laziness right i think is way, way overblown but i think that that but it's that perception that will be that will be the problem with implementing ubi regardless of what it might do positively or negatively because i think in the united states more than in other parts of the Western world, including Europe, people tend to have a view of poverty is connected with laziness. Mm -hmm. um, it's the Puritan where, work ethic that, that's coming. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So the welfare queen, right? Idea is just, um, I think, still entrenched in a lot of our minds. And that you know that that psychology makes sense. It gets to this free rider psychology that, for whatever reason, the extent we perceive um, people who have not accomplished as much as being lazy or under contributing then why should they get a handout I, um, but i guess that that isn't isn't to some extent that the advantage th that's the advantage of ubi is like everyone's getting the money so no one's i don't know um maybe it's kind of oh right taking so. the sting off of it a little bit i don't know yeah but um yeah. and then yeah i guess if everybody gets is it would it be proportional in some ways to like current income or is it just a flat a flat UV you know flat I think that's where the debate is right yeah um, I think they have variations but most commonly it's just straight like just a straight dollar amount mm -hmm. equally distributed yeah mm -hmm. um, I think it would have to be pretty big to matter yeah, so. <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs> maybe we can uh, round out this discussion on UBI maybe we can discuss AI a little bit and mm -hmm. speculate uh, about the future and, and how things are kind of developing on that front. Um, I'm curious what you think about how status will change when we will have machines able to do everything that humans can better. And not just not just in, in terms of things that are productive for the economy, but even things that may not necessarily be kind of productive like art and music, which it's already doing better than most humans. So mm -hmm. what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I wonder whether it's going to be push some kind of authenticity pushback. You know, you mentioned mm -hmm. art and music and whether um, there'll be more and more attempts to verify actual sort of knowledge or production that, that and whether it's coming from a human or it's coming from AI. Um, I don't know if those, you know, maybe, maybe not. Um, but uh, one, you know, I can see in the one way... Um, AI being a real problem for communication and trust such that it might actually force our 
politics and econo- and you know economies to be somewhat to somewhat decentralized more than mm. they have, or that you know the opposite they've been going the opposite trend. Because mm. um, if you can't trust communication, uh, you know, at a distance, by, mm. you know, the internet becomes a, bl- a less trusting place. Then maybe that forces more sort of face to face decentralization of our politics and our our economic transactions. Um, uh, so then maybe st- you know it does force a more local kind of status arena than. <laughs> Uh, that would be interesting. Because uh, <laughs> uh, that's, you know, that's what I, I wonder, and I think a lot of people articulate this, will AI uh, completely erase the gains we've gotten from the internet in terms of wide global scale communication? Because if you can't trust media or, or um, online, mm-hmm. then, um, uh, I've heard some people in, in like the management literature wonder what its effects will be on sort of the organization of firms and sort of hierarchy and, and status within organizations. Uh, so some people have, have thought, well, maybe, you know, this sort of day-to-day operational decision-making of a lot of middle managers will go away will, with it, with AI. Um, and so it's not just going to be the sort of people at the bottom of the workforce, the low end of the, you know, the totem pole that will be faced, mm-hmm. you know, uh, competition with AI, but a lot of the middle management, a lot of that sort of middle class, even upper middle class, uh, might see threats to their jobs. Well, we saw the same thing happen um, to like really the pool only of, the, yeah. of office secretaries, right? I mean, I mean, this kind of madman yeah. era where you had you know cadres of typists supporting office operations. I mean, once you had Microsoft Word drop, that's it. Um, you don't really need oh, yeah. Yeah. legions of all that. I, I think it's kind of a natural course of events, which. I suppose nobody ever wants to see their role as redundant in kind of the mm-hmm. future corporate sense. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that would just exacerbate the sort of winner-take-all kind of market mm-hmm. of status competition. Um, I mean, it, it seems like, it, you know, it could easily head towards a totally unsustainable level of inequality, in which case, you know, you do have societal collapse, revolts, you know, things of that nature. Um, but yeah, it seems like seems like it's unlikely there's going to be a middle ground that's going to be really good with AI or really bad. That's that's kind of the impression. <laughs> Chris, have, you, have you seen any yeah. impacts of technology at the level of the Chimani? Uh, technology doesn't have to be like AI or, or, or smartphones, but I mean, you mentioned that they're clearly not living in a vacuum where, where they're able to uh, watch movies, that they're aware of Michael Jackson's mm-hmm. fate before... Uh, one of his countrymen is, but but have you have you seen any innovations that have disrupted maybe um, historical ecosystems that they had? The use of cell phones has shot up uh, over the past ten twenty years um, pretty rapidly. Um, you know, and and where they don't have electricity per se at their houses, but they can charge their phones in the town. Um, and so people are interacting online. Um, and that's maybe been a positive and it's helped build a greater sense of co-ethnicity among the mm-hmm. Chimane, mm-hmm. Um, when they can communicate with people very, you know, living, you know, hundred miles away. They're also Chimane. Um, yeah. And I think that's the main thing I've noticed there's a technological change. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, a lot of the, you know, 
our discussion of AI just seems very removed from there. But on the other hand, I'm, you know, it's, I can see how the changes that will happen to our economies is going to quickly enfold them. So, um, the world's totally connected, but really what's been apparent is just use of cell phones, communicating via cell phone. Um, I remember when I first got a Facebook friended from Shimane person <laughs> and that was odd, <laughs> but now, but now I don't think twice about it, you know, and I'm on, I talk with some Chimani students that I'm helping now, um, on WhatsApp almost daily. So that's amazing. Yeah. You know. Wow. Is well, there a chance I, you're going to bring him out to the on... university? <laughs> Actually, yeah. Um, the university is hosting in this is the University of Richmond in November a week-long conference on sustainability and indigenous governance of, of natural resources and climate change. Um, and a fellow professor who also works in the Amazon there and I are inviting some of our Amazonian colleagues to come to the University of Richmond. So, um, so yeah, that's looking, you know, you never know, um, things can go awry with visas and whatever else, but, um, yeah, that, that, might... that is fantastic. Are you, uh, are you working on any other like research projects that you like to share? Uh, anything exciting? Well, uh, I just, well, currently I'm in discussion with somebody that, that works with, um, hunter gatherers in East Africa and we're, we're both interested in really quantifying what egalitarianism means. Um, in a lot of these societies that pe people have labeled egalitarian and yet, you know, what people mean by egalitarianism seems to differ. Some people see it as more like economic equality. Others see it as political autonomy. Others see it as equal ability to affect political discussion. Um, others see it as sort of reproductive equality. So there's a lot of ways in which egalitarianism has been invoked by anthropologists and in other disciplines. And, um, and it's only been, you know, and a lot of anthropologists have used the term only really subjectively and descriptively. So we're trying to create a, a cross-cultural project where we get local people to sort of try and think about how they would trade off these different metrics of egalitarianism, be it economic or political, um, and and then sort of compare societies on these on these rankings that people make to look at what kinds of ecological and social and cultural history factors um contribute to that variation in in egalitarianism um so that's my current project that's great that's great uh i uh really appreciate you coming on um it, it's been a great discussion i think we mm -hmm. hit pretty much everything that we wanted to uh, how can people reach you or find more of your work if they're interested in that um google chris von ruden um, and you'll, I'll, I should pop up. I've got a personal website. You can find my research and, um, some popular articles I've written and things. Um, perfect. But yeah, perfect. But thank you too for chatting with me. Yeah, me absolutely. On. I mean, we'd love to do it again after, you know, you've, you've got a few more research projects under your belt. So that's that I, I, I love the work you're doing. I, uh, I think it's fascinating. I think it's, you know, it's, it's the kind of hard empirical insights that we need um so this is this this has been great maybe thank this you very is much. what saves the humanities thank you chris <laughs> yeah yeah well uh hope you guys enjoyed the show don't forget to subscribe hit the like button comment anything to get that algorithm going and hit us up on twitter at radius underscore of 
Have a good one. See ya.